This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This week, when water goes from life saver to life destroyer, we analyse the growing threat of flooding. Plus, in the news, GM mosquitoes that can't spread malaria, General Relativity celebrates its 100th birthday, and what really did in the dinosaurs? I'm Kat Arney. And I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. A mosquito, which has been genetically engineered to prevent the spread of malaria, has been unveiled by scientists in the US this week. Now, malaria affects about 300 million people every year, and it leads to hundreds of thousands of deaths, more than 70% of them in young children. This new mosquito carries genes that will enable it to block the growth of the malaria parasite so that it can't pass on the disease. And what's clever about this new approach, which is referred to as a gene drive, is that the scientists have engineered the insects in such a way that when they mate, they automatically pass on the antimalarial genes meaning that over time, the entire mosquito population should eventually become malaria-resistant. Anthony James at the University of California, Irvine, is leading the project. What we're doing here is putting genes into mosquitoes that make it so the parasite will not survive in the mosquito. And if we do that, then um, the parasite can't complete those aspects of its life cycle that it needs the mosquito for and can't be transmitted to humans. How do you encourage the gene to find its way into the wild population? Does it give them an advantage so that they're more likely to pick up the gene? Because otherwise, wouldn't it just fizzle out? This is the beauty of the gene drive system, is that it favors its own inheritance. So the way to think about it is that if you have an insect that has your gene in it, and it mates with a a wild mosquito, all of the progeny of that wild mosquito uh, will have our gene drive in it. So it doesn't really need a major fitness advantage to, to propagate itself. And biochemically, what does this modified mosquito do differently that means that malaria just can't grow in it? It has a, a number of genes in it that have components that interact with the malaria parasite and prevent the malaria parasite from completing its development in the mosquito. The technology was based on the observations that there are many different malaria parasites. So there are malarias that infect mice. There are malarias that infect humans. So humans don't get mouse malaria and um, mice don't get human malaria. So many years ago, a number of our colleagues took the human parasites, put them into mice, and then identified components of the mouse immune system that would essentially fight off the human parasites. 
Well, we took those components and built little miniature genes out of them and then put them into the mosquito. So basically what we have is a mosquito that has a small part of the mouse immune system that allows it to fight off the human parasite. Malaria has notably become resistant to a large number of drugs and there are only a few left that really work reliably now. So is there not a danger that quite quickly the parasite would become resistant to this intervention in your mosquito and it would find a way around this blockade and carry on business as usual? Yeah, so this is a good question. And so we see this actually in in many drug treatments, not just to parasites, but bacteria um, and fungal infections, for example. And so the strategy is to, um, when treating these infectious agents, is to not give one, but to give two different drugs. And the idea is that while the parasite may successfully work its way around one of those, trying to do both of them at the same time is very difficult. And the probability of that happening is very low. And that's exactly what we've done in our mosquitoes. We've actually put in two genes that target different stages of the parasite. And so the parasites may figure out how to get around one of them. But in that that same parasite that figured out how to get around one, uh, the chances of it at the same time figuring out how to get around the second one uh, make it so that it's extremely unlikely that we'll see resistance. What about safety? Could this in any way endow the mosquito with any other abilities to cause disease or, or spread these sorts of genes into other things that shouldn't have them? That's a good question as well. And, and um, so we look at the, um, the large number of bloodborne pathogens that are out there. And we look at the fact that there are mosquitoes feeding on people that have these bloodborne pathogens. And we see a high degree of host specificity, meaning things like HIV, things like hepatitis, do not actually grow in mosquitoes. If, if they could, they already would. The changes that we're making are very targeted and very directed and don't influence at all portions of the cellular machinery that would make the mosquitoes good hosts for that. And is this going to work? What evidence have you got that this is a real prospect? The evidence is the fact that we have genes that will make the mosquitoes resistant to malaria parasites. And we have a technology now that allows us, at least in the, in the cages, to spread them through large numbers of, of mosquitoes. And so just in a laboratory, we can design it so that it has the properties that we hope it'll manifest, but we've got to test it at every level. So, you know, I, I can't guarantee that exactly what we made in the laboratory today would be something that would be used in the field. In fact, I, I doubt very much whether it would, but um, we have the, the blueprint for making something that could work that way. And the possible time scale? For the science, it'll go fairly quickly. Um, the confounding factor is, is a positive one in a sense. We need a regulatory environment, a community engagement environment in a social environment that will accept the use of these technologies. And it's very difficult to tell how quickly these things will mature to the point where there'll be acceptance for using this. So while we make make a lot of progress in the science and the laboratory, whether this ever goes to the field will be dependent on the social side of it and the regulatory side of it. And it's at this point very difficult to tell you how quickly that'll move along. Anthony James, he's at the University of California, Irvine, and that study was published this week in the journal PNAS. Now, moving from mosquitoes to our faces. For the average person, recognising the faces of family members and friends is a second nature, but for machines, it's a real challenge, although they are getting better at it, and this could be a game-changer in the security and entertainment industries. With us to explain how is the naked scientist expert Peter Cowley. Hi, Peter. Hi there. Good evening, Kat. Tell me, how does a machine recognise a face? 
that, well, it's quite technical, but if I run through it very briefly, there are really four methods it does that. One is geometric, i.e. the position size of the eyes, nose, cheekbones, etc. Next version is to add 3D to that, so that's the depth of the eye sockets, the nose and the chin. There's a photometric way of doing it, which is effectively taking a statistical comparison between your face and one stored on the database. And finally, they add to that skin texture analysis, lines, patterns, spots, colour, etc. So, but, yeah, how could this work in things like passports, uh, that those kind of security systems? Because... My face doesn't look a lot like my passport photo a lot of the time. Yeah, well, the big issues really in detecting are, one, whether you are uh, looking directly on or not or turning your head, uh, the lighting, hair, whether you've got glasses on or not, which is why, of course, you have to take your glasses off at the passport thing at the airport, and also whether you're still alive or not, of course, because <laughs> you could just have somebody could have printed out a photograph of you. But, yeah, the ones that are being used to answer your question are, as you say, passports. In fact, Australia and New Zealand, they're already using that. Things like criminals in crowds. I mean, I'm sure the security forces use that a tremendous amount. Silly little things like greeting hotel guests. So as you walk in, it says, hello, Mr. Smith. ATMs to replace pins. That might be better than a pin, mightn't it? Et cetera, et cetera. And we already use them, in fact, because of these smile detectors in our cameras and on our phones that you say smile. And then it detects the smiles occurred and we'll then take the photograph. I find that kind of stuff really fascinating that can see faces and all these sort of things. And you said the smile detector. So we're starting to see stories now coming out about facial recognition software that can detect emotions. Tell me a bit about this. What's this kind of technology? Yeah, well, just, just again, a bit of tech to start with. First of all, we have apparently 33 muscles in our face, of which nine around the eyes, four is on the nose and, and 12 around the mouth. They've produced something. There's a standard throughout the world of facial action coding system, which is split into action units, some of which are really unusual, like nostril dilator and lip corner <laughs> depressor. So based on those 30 action units and the movement between that, then systems are in place to detect one of seven base emotions, which are joy, sadness, surprise, anger, fear, disgust and contempt. So if you're looking at somebody in a conversation, you will have, you know, a pretty constant emotion. But there are also what are called micro expressions, which just last about 50 milliseconds. And I actually tested this on somebody the other day, or I mentioned somebody's name, and you could see this look of slightly unease and then a smile appeared after that. <laughs> Ooh, not sure. No, they're fine. They're fine. <laughs> yes, exactly. They're fine. Exactly. Um, does, how well does this kind of stuff work? Because, you know, some people maybe hide their emotions. Is this technology actually any good? Well, apparently there are something like one in 400 of us who are actually pretty good lie detectors who can actually recognise the lie because of this micro-expression occurring. This is being used primarily for uh, research at the moment. And research is moving into other applications like particularly for, say, training autistic uh, children about emotions because they struggle with recognising what the emotion is of the person they're facing. They start a bit of this robot carers. These are starting oh, to happen in Japan. Oh, you can see unhappy or something. Oh, Mrs yeah. Jones, you, yeah. you're not feeling good today. I mean, more on a more trivial thing, you know, could it perhaps say if you're chatting with someone on, on social media or something, you could go, ooh, they look like they fancy you a bit or a smart mirror that says, oh, you look a bit sad today and tells you you look yes. fabulous. Yes, I mean, some, read, some listeners might have heard of Tender, which is an app which apparently is used by younger people than me for finding mates. <laughs> you could be doing by just looking at the phone rather than swiping either way. So. That's, it's quite a terrifying thought. I mean, 
could this have sort of security implications? Yeah, I mean, the What's two, going on here? The two big issues around the moment are the usual, the sort of false positive and false negatives. If you start making decisions based on something that's statistically correct or not, and you get it wrong, then of course you're going to potentially make the wrong decision. You know, lie detector, for instance, well, accusing somebody of lying they're not. And potentially, you know, things like banking security yeah, and banking, stuff like that. Yeah, banking, yeah. And then the, the big one that's floating around, which is in all technology spheres, is, is privacy. And in fact, I have noticed that people have put post-it notes over their camera when they're not using Skype so that it can't be looked at, you can't be hacked into. Which reminds me, I need to do that. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, That's tech you. investor Peter Cowley. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Katani. Coming up, Einstein's general theory of relativity reaches 100. And do goldfish really have a three-second memory? But first... What killed the dinosaurs? Over the past 40 years, the exact cause of the death of the dinosaurs has been hotly debated. Some favour the theory that a massive meteor hit the Earth and changed the climate, while others argue that a sequence of huge volcanic eruptions also contributed to the mass extinction. Research this week from Leeds University has poured cold water on the latter theory, suggesting that the impacts of these volcanoes would have been relatively small. Georgia Mills spoke to lead researcher Anya Schmidt. I'm running climate models and what I did is I gathered all the information we have about this volcanism that happened 65 to 66 million years ago. So we needed to know how long were these eruptions, how much volcanic gases were emitted and then once we had all this information we put that in a very sophisticated computer model and then we could simulate what these emissions would do to the environment but also to climate. And what did you find out when you ran these simulations? Some researchers previously actually suggested that because of these volcanic eruptions, temperatures on Earth would drop really drastically, and they call this a so-called volcanic winter. So just imagine really, really cold surface temperatures. But what we find actually when running this climate model with all the information we gathered, we find that temperatures didn't drop that drastically. So the situation wasn't as grim as previously suggested by some scientists. So with our work, we actually find that because of the there is a drop in temperatures, but it would probably be okay for most animals and plants. So they would have been able to cope with these temperature changes. Why would a volcano erupting cause a drop in temperature in the first place? So volcanoes emit a lot of gases, and one of the most prominent gases is sulfur dioxide. And once sulfur dioxide is in, in the atmosphere, it actually gets chemically converted to form very, very small particles. You can't see them with your bare eye. But these particles, they basically reduce the amount of energy that comes down to Earth's surface from the sun. So less energy reaches the surface and therefore you end up with a cooling of the Earth's surface. We really show that depending on the, how long these eruptions lasted, so if they lasted, for example, a decade, we find that the surface temperatures returned back to normal very quickly within a couple of decades, so as quickly as 50 years, for example. And that's just a normal process. Basically, there's a big kick to the Earth system because of these volcanic emissions and these particles in the atmosphere, so they reduce the energy. But all these particles eventually fall out of the atmosphere, and then Earth's temperatures can basically return back to normal. Is it just the coolant temperatures that volcanoes could have impacted? No, actually, some scientists actually thought about the fact that following a volcanic eruption, the atmosphere gets very, very acidic and you get what we call acid rain. Acidic rain can actually damage vegetation. So we also assess this in our model. And what we actually find is rather surprising. We find that in some parts of the world, 
vegetation would indeed have died off because of the acid rain, but this effect we, we don't see it on a global scale, so we can't explain a global scale mass extinction with acid rain due to volcanism. In, in your paper, you mentioned that this simulation would be accurate provided that climate feedback systems, so the way that climate worked in the past, was the same as it is today. Do we have any reason to suspect that it was the same? We don't know for sure because we're really talking about um, many million years ago. Um, so we had to make this assumption that was the best assumption we could make um, at the time. But it could well be that the climate um, feedbacks would actually be very different in, in ancient times, but we still don't know. So that's another area of research to understand climate feedbacks. So how does the climate react to a volcanic forcing, as we call it? So if the system is kicked by a big volcanic eruption, how does it react? Why should we care what killed the dinosaurs? It happened 60 million years ago. It's probably not going to happen again. Why, why, why research this? So I think one thing is because dinosaurs are really, really fascinating. Young and old are fascinated by creatures that are not around anymore. They were really, really powerful. They also looked a bit weird, didn't they? With, with their headgear, some had really nice colors and even feathers. And I think it's fascinating. Um, they were so powerful, but we still don't understand what actually killed them. So that's one reason to study that. And in terms of volcanic eruptions, I think it's very important to understand what volcanic eruptions can do to climate and the environment, because for sure there will be another eruption in our lifetime. They will look completely different than the eruption I was talking about in my study. But you may also know that now people are talking about ways to mitigate global warming. And one of this is called um, geoengineering. So people propose to put in tiny particles into the atmosphere, very similar to what we have after a volcanic eruption. So my work can also help to understand the consequences of doing this kind of geoengineering. Sounds a bit risky to me there. That's Dr. Anja Schmidt. She's from Leeds University, and that work was published in Nature Geoscience. Now it's time for Kat to go myth-busting with another myth conception. Kat, what have you got for us this week? Well, I've been wrapping my brain around the often repeated fact that goldfish only have a three-second memory span. It's not clear where this myth originated, but it's often been used for comic effect, particularly by people whose memories aren't the best. Uh, what was I saying? There's even been a movie named after the supposed phenomenon, although it's a romantic comedy rather than a fishy feature film. In fact, most fish, including goldfish, are more than capable of performing pretty good feats of learning and memory, and anyone who's kept pet fish will know that they're not usually swimming about in a permanent state of freaked-out amnesia. It's not hard to disprove either. The claim's been debunked by many people, from university researchers and TV mythbusters to curious school kids. For example, there's evidence that fish can distinguish colours, shapes, tastes and sounds. They may even recognise their owners and certainly learn to become habituated to them, as well as other fish in their tank. And these memories last for months, not minutes. According to a study by animal psychologists at Plymouth University, goldfish can even tell the time. The researchers trained the fish to nudge a lever to get food, but they fixed it so it only dispensed the goodies for one hour per day. The clever fish adapted quickly, learning to cluster around the lever as lunchtime approached. Scientists are now trying to unpick the molecular nuts and bolts that underpin a goldfish's mind by training them to respond to different coloured light cues associated with food. And it's likely that the fundamental processes at the heart of a goldfish's mind are similar to those in ours, despite a few million years of evolutionary separation. 
Furthermore, scientists have studied other fishy mines. At the Society for Experimental Biology annual meeting in 2014, a Canadian researcher presented data showing that African cichlids, small fish that are popular in domestic aquariums, can be trained to go to different parts of their tank to receive food. After three days of training, the fish were put in a different aquarium for 12 days. After that, they were popped back into their training arena and showed a strong preference for seeking out the areas where they'd previously found yummy food. Of course, it makes little sense for animals like these fish to have virtually no capacity for making memories at all. In the wild, they need to be able to remember the locations of safe places to eat, free from the threat of predators. So while they're unlikely to win Mastermind anytime soon, it's not surprising they have a reasonable amount of brain power. And of course, any fish that can't remember the location of dinner isn't likely to do very well in evolutionary terms. There's more. Scientists in Israel managed to train sea-dwelling fish to respond to particular sounds played over an underwater loudspeaker, coming towards the source of the sound in return for food. Importantly, they could remember this audio cue months later, flocking back for a feed when the sound was played again after living in the wild. There's more to this than a biological curiosity, though. Many species of marine fish are farmed in large underwater pens, and this can have a knock-on effect on their health and well-being. Perhaps a sonic signal sent out to free-living fish that have previously been trained in captivity could be a good way of enticing them back to be caught. And finally, perhaps my favourite fishy fact that I've discovered is this. Goldfish can tell the difference between different types of music, according to a study from Japanese scientists. In their tests, fish were able to discriminate between the famous Toccata and Fugue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach, a piece of neatly precise organ music, and Igor Stravinsky's effusive and orchestral rite of spring. Although their main finding was that fish aren't really fans of loud music at all, which isn't that surprising. So next time someone makes a joke about goldfish having a tiny memory span, you can remember that this is one myth that needs to be forgotten. I thought you were going to say that they would tell the difference between water music and something else, or perhaps a bit of drum and bass. <laughs> terrible. If there's a myth that you'd like us to look into, a bit of dodgy science that you'd like Kat to bust open, then send your suggestions to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientist, or also you can find us on our Facebook page. Now, this month has seen a relatively special anniversary, and there's a clue there, because 100 years ago, on the 25th of November, Albert Einstein presented his theory of general relativity to the world. Now, this theory fundamentally changed aspects of physics that hadn't really altered since the time of Isaac Newton, when he came up with them hundreds of years earlier. Literally overnight, Einstein became a celebrity, in fact, the first scientific celebrity. Beginning with a whistle-stop tour, thanks to the UK's Science and Technology Facilities Council, that's the STFC, and David Tennant of what general relativity is all about, Connie Orbach has been hearing how Einstein got there. At 26, he figured out nothing less than a new theory of space and time. It led to a nifty way of simplifying physics, by treating space and time as one thing. Space-time. But Albert was just warming up. He wasn't happy with Isaac Newton's mysterious force of gravity. Naturally, he started work on his own theory. And sure enough, he cracked it. Mass causes space-time to curve. The natural motion of things is to follow the simplest path through space-time. But since objects with mass curve space-time, stuff moves towards the most massive object. That's what you feel as gravity. It's warped space and time that's keeping your feet on the ground. 
So that's general relativity, a theory to end all theories. But how did Einstein himself become so famous? I caught up with Professor Jerry Gilmore at Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy to find out. Now we're coming down to this, this end of the building, which is where the director used to live, and going into the room that used to be the director's sitting room, where the great people would have worked, and there's a whole string of famous people uh, uh, lived in this half of the building. The one that's particularly relevant for this current centenary is Sir Arthur Eddington, who in 1919 showed that light is bent by the sun in just exactly the way that uh, Einstein's general relativity, which is 100 years old today, predicted. Yeah. That was the event. The public announcement of that, which was in November 1919, was what made Einstein famous. That's when Einstein appeared on the front page of the New York Times and the London Times and became a celebrity. That was the beginning of scientific celebrity. Changed, <laughs> changed our view of scientists completely. Early A-lister. Absolutely. <laughs> An A-lister indeed. And if you asked many people today, Einstein would still be on their dream dinner party list. Let's go back 100 years to find out how it all came about. OK, so this was, of course, in the, right in the middle of the darkest days of the First World War. Uh, but in spite of that, mathematical physics in Germany was advancing at a spectacularly fast rate. So there were several people racing towards what became general relativity. Einstein got there first. But none of this was known in the West. The only connection between German science and the outside world was via the Netherlands, a, a neutral country at the time. And they were communicating both with Einstein and with Eddington. So the people in Leiden realised the importance of what Einstein was doing and sent the work to England to be published by Eddington. Eddington also independently realised the enormous value of this and further developed the work himself and took it upon himself to market and explain uh, relativity to Western scientists. And so he wrote books and articles which were hugely popular and hugely influential. Whereas um, uh, Einstein's own work marketing the uh, the theory didn't actually appear in English until the 1920s, so Eddington had already done it. Since then, we're now 100 yeah. years on for that, from that, this theory still stands. That's right, yes. It, it turns out uh, <coughs> that general relativity has been tested to astonishing precision. And every single test we've done of it over the last 100 years, it turns out to be dead right. It, it's truly remarkable. So the whole subject of black holes in space, all these wonderful things we take for granted, X-ray astronomy, massive exotic events, quasars, these are all extreme versions of general relativistic phenomena, none of which happen in, under Newton. And every single day we astronomers are uh, studying things that just exactly follow general relativity. So we know it's accurate as a description of the solar system around us to much better than one part in a million. Einstein's theory has inspired scores of scientists with his work. But beyond that, he has also become a figure of popular culture, in literature, art, and on this centenary, also in music, as Sam Genders has written a song to commemorate the anniversary with his band Diagrams. I got in touch with Sam to find out what inspired him. This day of things back in obviously a really interesting person and came up with these incredible ideas and for me there's something so inspiring about the fact that so much so much of the work he did um just came from pure maths and thought experiments and you know so much science is done through technology these days that i, I find that really exciting 
the bending of space and time is something which can quite easily be kind of turned into music in a way. It's got quite a romantic element to it. Yeah, it's sort of um, metaphorically ripe, you know, for kind of um, slightly ambiguous lyrics that could be about science or could be about relationships, you know. And Einstein himself was, a, as far as relationships went, especially romantic ones, was a, a fairly complicated human being. And so it, within the song... There are sort of these threads of relationship and uh, sort of playing on the words a little bit of general relativity about how we we do all see things from certain different perspectives. So yeah, it's uh, yeah inspired me anyway. It's only Sam joins the pile of people inspired by Einstein, science's first A-lister, but he couldn't have got there alone. His work on general relativity made him a great scientist, but Sir Arthur Eddington made him famous. Yes, Eddington um, deliberately made Einstein a superstar. It was part of a conscious programme for a small number of people led by Eddington to try and rebuild scientific connections between Germany and the rest of the world after the war. But Einstein was all over the front page of the New York Times and the front page of the London Times, you know, world-shaken, you know, new theory, Newton wrong, the stars are not where they ought to be, all this sort of stuff. And so this started the cult of, of celebrity science. like to have Einstein on this programme, of course, give him a bit of an interview. We'd give him a grilling, I'm sure, wouldn't we, Kat? That was the story of popular science. Jerry Gilmore there talking to Connie Orbach. The music was Sam Genders with his song General Relativity, and that was produced by Martin Gregory Smith. If you just look at body size and cancer, you might expect larger organisms to get more cancer, right, because they have more cells. But that isn't the case. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're unravelling Pito's paradox. Animals like elephants have many more cells than humans and they live longer, yet they hardly ever get cancer. But why? Plus, revolutions in genetics and a magical gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with me, Kat Arney. Now it's time to move on to the main theme of this week's show. And this week it's the United Nations Conference on Climate Change, which is in Paris. Delegates there will be trying to reach a new international agreement to keep global warming below a target of two degrees Celsius. One impact of climate change is that scientists predict more extreme weather events such as drought and also the topic of this week's show, flooding. We'll be looking at cutting-edge techniques allowing us to predict which areas will be affected by flooding and what we can do once we know the worst is coming. But how do we know what is actually on the way? Well, Rob Thompson is a meteorologist at the University of Reading. Rob, how do you do your job? How do forecasters predict when where and how much it's going to rain? So these days, computer models have really been run to work out the physics of what's going on in the atmosphere. In essence, fluid dynamics of what's happening with the water moving around and the air systems. And that's how weather forecasting is done for any kind of weather, really, rain, flooding or droughts, etc. 
What are the giveaways when you look at the pictures and the models that you're gathering that tells you there's a lot of energy in the atmosphere in one place that might lead to a storm and there's also a lot of water which would potentially turn into a flood? You kind of get two different types of flood, really. So when we're thinking flooding, you get flooding caused by very intense rain, sort of thunderstorm-type events where very heavy rain falls for usually a fairly short period. But we also get, of course, a lot of river flooding in somewhere. It rains not necessarily desperately hard, but for hours and hours or even days on end, and that can obviously cause rivers to burst their banks and so on. And they're quite different mechanisms. The weather that generates them is really quite different and different forecasting challenges. How far ahead can you see into the future? These days, I would say sort of out to about five days, our weather forecasts are pretty good, certainly in terms of predicting the sort of general weather systems, what kind of weather we're going to have. Much beyond that, sort of out to probably 10 days, they're certainly significantly better than just guesswork. Beyond that, really, it tends to be much more difficult. What would you say your level of accuracy is? What percentage error do you give on your forecasts these days? Predicting, for instance, the temperatures, the Met Office will quote at values of around 95% of the time being correct or within a couple of degrees for daytime maximums, for instance, for tomorrow. So that's usually, that's sort of really the good kind of numbers. And when might you be able to tell that there's bad news on the way? How far in advance can you say, well, that really looks like it's building towards something that could dump an enormous amount of water or be a torrential deluge over a period of time that would lead to a flood? Um, so, it will again, it will depend to some extent on what kind. So if you're talking the sort of intense rainfalls, we're probably a few days out now. We'd probably be, we're in a situation where there's definitely the possibility of really heavy, strong convection. Convection is basically the sort of, shower clouds and thunderstorm it's basically just caused by the hot air rises we all know that hot air rises and it sort of leads what leads to thermals it also if it gets going strongly it leads to full-on clouds thunderstorms and eventually a lot of rain can form and we'll really know the conditions are setting up to make that very likely a few days out what we don't know is where it would trigger i think the best way to analogy for that is to think of putting a saucepan of water on the hob you can predict fairly accurately what time it's going to start boiling so we all know if you put hot water on the hob it will boil in a few minutes time but what we can't really predict at the moment is exactly where each of the bubbles are going to form at the bottom of your saucepan and start bubbling up and that's kind of what happens with these heavy rainstorms at the moment the models can predict that it's going to start happening over sort of a fairly wide area but they're not very good at the moment at saying precisely when and exactly how hard the, any rain would be, so exactly how intense the storms would, that would generate would be. One thing's for sure, though, you mustn't watch it because a watch pot never boils, does it? Rob Thompson from the University of Reading. Knowing when it might flood is helpful, but that's only half the story. More importantly, to avoid catastrophes, planners also need to know where flooding is likely to occur. And that's the job of researchers like Newcastle University hydrologist Liz Lewis. Sam Mahaffey went to meet her. Hi, Liz. Hi, Sam. I'm meeting Liz in the Novak Hydraulics Lab at Newcastle University. It's a long, high-ceilinged room full of pipes, pumps and huge tanks of water running from one end to the other. The noise you can hear is the sound of water gushing into a big, open-top channel right in the middle of the room. I asked Liz 
why it's so difficult to predict where floods are going to hit. In some ways it's very easy because we know how water flows. Water flows downhill and it pools when it can't get out. But there are lots of other compounding factors such as the drains might be blocked and ground's already wet. Somewhere might have flood defences in place already but they might not have been opened or shut at the right time. And there's a big human element of it so it might happen in the night when... You know, roads getting flooded isn't so bad, but it might happen at rush hour, which means you get lots of traffic jams. So knowing where the water's going to go is one thing. It's knowing how that's going to affect our transport networks and our distribution networks. How do scientists and engineers do this? There are lots of things to think about, and we do it with models. We have physical models, like you can hear in the background, and we also have computer models, which lets us run thousands of simulations of something happening and have a look at a whole range of outputs. When I think of a model, I think of what I'm looking at right now, which is this sort of scaled down river with water flowing through it, the sand and gravel that's like the riverbed. How useful are these kinds of physical models? These models are very useful, but we probably don't use them like you would think. So we don't build a physical model city Instead, what we've got here is kind of a segment of a riverbed and we use it for understanding how water flows. We look at how the water will move the sand and the gravel around, so looking at sediment transport. So we use it more to understand the processes which we can then build into our computational models. These computational models sound really complicated, but Liz promised to show me something that would explain it all and it gave us a chance to get away from the noisy lab. I'm in a dimly lit room, but in front of me is a big box of sand, and projected onto the sand is a map with contours and some little Lego pieces in the corner. Don't know what we're going to do with those. Liz, what am I looking at here? So this is the department's augmented reality sandbox. What we've got set up here is a kind of a, a metre square sandbox full of sand. And above it, we've got a projector and we also have an Xbox Connect, which is a 3D camera. So that can sense the surface of the sand. And so what that does is the camera senses the surface of the sand that feeds down into the computer that's at the bottom and that projects back onto it these contours, which is the, the topography, which the model uses to figure where to route the water. What does this sand correspond to? Okay, so what we're doing with the sand is basically building hills and a valley. So we can make a nice flat catchment like you'd find in Cambridge on the Fens, or we can build a really steep-sided catchment like you'd find in Scotland. And we can use that to demonstrate how water is going to flow in these different environments. Shall we have a go? Yes, let's. What we're going to do now is build some mountains. Okay, so Liz is gouging out a big valley into the sand. The map that's projected onto the surface of the sand has changed completely. Now the contours are in a completely different place. You can kind of see that it's looking like some hills now. At the bottom of this valley and where the river widens out, we've kind of got this floodplain now, so a flat bit. And this is historically where towns and villages were built along next to a river. So what we're going to do is put our Lego houses and 
build a little mini city at the bottom of this valley to see what happens when different amounts of rain occur and see where it's going to get flooded. So this is what the Lego is for. We're going to build a model village. Okay, so now we've got our topography and we've got a little village at the bottom. Please, can we make it rain? Yeah, so we make it rain by holding our hands above the surface and again the 3d camera is sensing that my hand's there and so what it does is it simulates water directly underneath where my hand is so i've put it over the top of a catchment so this is kind of at the very top of the valley where it's steepest and we can see that this digital simulated water is flowing really quickly down the sides and really quickly down the river. And the water's swooshing up the sides and completely devastating the little Lego town that we built. It looks like an aerial view of what you might see during a flood. As you hover your hand over, rainfall is collecting on the ground and just flowing downhill straight towards our Lego houses. Behind this sandbox, presumably, there's lots of computery things going on that's working out what's downhill and what will affect where the water goes. That's right. So there is a computational model behind this, which is using proper hydraulic equations to route the water. So that basically means it knows the shape and size of the channel and it knows how much water has been simulated. What kind of uses do you have for these computer models? There are lots of reasons that we build models. Firstly, to understand where might flood, to understand how big the flood is going to be, to understand what it's likely to impact. So is it going to flood near our hospital or is it going to flood near our supermarket and then lastly and the really important thing is what can we do to prevent flooding so what we can do now is in this sandbox we can put a little lego wall in here and we can empty all the water out and then we can create another storm and this time when the water flows down the sides and it gets towards the city it doesn't enter the city because we've built this big flood fence Liz Lewis from Newcastle University talking to Sam Mahaffey. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Katani. We're talking about flooding this week. Still to come, we'll hear what we can do to prevent the problem. Before that, though, modelling allows us to predict when and where flooding will occur, but not everywhere is impacted equally. Some parts of the world are hit with devastating floods much more frequently than others. And in developing countries, it's often the most vulnerable people who are the most severely affected. In Myanmar earlier this year, monsoon flooding caused widespread damage. My rice crops and my fields will be damaged because they have been totally flattened. I planted the fields a month ago, but I hadn't finished when the floods came. Now my house may be damaged, and I will have to take food from the monastery when I'm able to return home. I came here to the monastery when we had bad floods ten years ago. This time, it is worse. Clips prepared by the Red Cross, and it's the Red Cross and organisations like them that, when floods strike, offer emergency aid and health care. But apart from the obvious physical devastation, what other legacies does flooding leave in its wake? Claire Grisafi is a water sanitation and hygiene technical advisor for the British Red Cross, and she spoke to me about why some countries are hit harder and more often than others. The first thing is lack of infrastructure, the immediately obvious one being in terms of flood defences, but you're also lacking the kind of transport and communication infrastructure, which means that it's so much more difficult to have 
good early warning systems in place, evacuation routes are much more difficult and much more challenging. What about the general geography of where these countries are? Does that make a difference? Well, absolutely. So one of the reasons why so many low- and middle-income countries haven't developed is because they're in disaster-prone areas. So Southeast Asia particularly is one of the most affected regions in the world in terms of um, flooding and typhoons. Um, So you get into this negative cycle. So your infrastructure is destroyed. Your GDP is massively impacted. And then you can't afford to build back better and then build systems for protection and everything else. So it's like a kind of cyclic problem. It's a really massive barrier to economic growth. You also have issues because it tends to be that in lower middle-income countries, your population growth is much higher. So you have more people. And then the most vulnerable people tend to be in the most high-risk areas. So floodplains, coastal areas. And all of that kind of comes together to mean that in low-income countries, just many more people die from the same kind of extreme event than richer countries. I suppose if you have got those sorts of population and space pressures and also a financial pressure, people don't also tend to build very well. They'll knock up shanty towns and things like that, which are much more vulnerable to mm. exigent weather conditions compared with a more robustly built settlement. Yeah, absolutely. So your infrastructure, when it is there, tends to be lower quality and your population is also more vulnerable in other ways so they don't maybe have the kind of coping strategies lower income higher rates of malnutrition all of that comes together to mean that a flooding event has a much bigger impact and when a flood does happen apart from obviously people can lose their homes how are people impacted well the big issues obviously people lose their homes and they're they're displaced they also lose all their belongings they lose access to all the basic services. They don't have access to clean water, no sanitation, which means then you have huge public health risks. Um, the water might be contaminated. For example, if you're in an area with pit latrines, all the pit latrines are flooded. If you have um, maybe septage tanks, so there's massive contamination risks, which means there's an increased risk of things like cholera. And then you also have stagnant water, which means you've got breeding grounds for mosquitoes. Uh, you've got risks from malaria and dengue. So those are the kind of the um, immediate impacts. So you lose everything, you're in a very high-risk environment and you're kind of clustered into maybe an evacuation centre if you're lucky in a very small area of land. What about longer term? What then? Your livelihoods are decimated, basically. So at the local level, households lose their crops and you're talking about countries where most people are going to be reliant on subsistence agriculture. So they lose that, which then leads to increased food security risks. And then at the national level... The economic impacts are huge. You know, your infrastructure is destroyed, transport infrastructure, communication, you know, water supply. In Myanmar, recently, millions of dollars of infrastructure was destroyed. And I think they've had to massively reduce their rice exports because of the damage to the crops. So the national level economic impact can be really, really huge. What can an organisation like the Red Cross do about this? So the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement has an enormous capacity because it has national societies in 189 countries and 17 million volunteers worldwide. So the reach is really, really huge. And it also, it works as an auxiliary to governments. So it's quite different to most of the organisations in the humanitarian sector. So it has a mandate to support the government in terms of early warning systems, supporting evacuations and everything else. So basically the volunteers... I mean, they just get out there immediately, out into the communities, they help people evacuate, they do rescue operations. They would then start distributing relief items. Most national societies have preposition stocks of things like tarpaulins and soap and buckets. So really basic equipment to get that out immediately to households who've been displaced and affected. They also do things like providing drinking water. And in some areas, they also do some kind of basic health services. So that's a really kind of acute response is getting out, supporting people, doing evacuations, doing rescue and getting out distributions of essential equipment. 
how do you make sure that those essentials go to the people who most need it? Because we have seen situations, and there was the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, for example. There were people complaining that while there was no shortage of aid and equipment infrastructure turning up, in some countries, bureaucracy and in, in other cases, corruption was stopping that much needed aid actually getting where it needed to go. Absolutely, that's a critical issue. I think um, accountability to beneficiaries is a massive issue for everyone working in the humanitarian sector and there's more and more focus on it. In the Red Cross Red Crescent, it's a, they have a very clear kind of structure already in place before an emergency, down to a local branch and then out to volunteers, which helps to have that kind of accountability because you have an existing local knowledge and existing local networks. But yeah, I mean, it's an issue. I mean, there were 2,000 volunteers out providing emergency relief in Myanmar. And then how do you keep track of everything and make sure it is getting to the most vulnerable people is really, really hard. How do you decide when your job is done? Or when you say, well, look, we've done as much as we can here. Now it's time for someone else to take over and take things forward. Because obviously the problem doesn't go away as soon as the floodwaters recede. Where do you draw the line and then move your efforts elsewhere? Well, this, I, mean, I think this is another great thing about the Red Cross and the Red Crescent movement is that you don't move elsewhere. I mean, maybe, for example, the British Red Cross would provide some of the funding for an emergency response and some of the recovery, but the National Society stays there and they carry on working. In Myanmar, they're, going, they're continuing to work on recovery programmes after the flood, things like livelihoods and agriculture. And so they're not going anywhere, they're staying there. Claire Grisafi from the British Red Cross talking to me earlier. As we've heard, it's predicted that climate-driven extreme weather events such as flooding are going to become more common and more severe. The big question is, what can we do about it? How are we going to protect ourselves in the future? With me is Elan Kelman. He's a researcher in risk and disaster reduction at the Institute for Global Health at UCL. So, Elan, if the risk of flooding in many places around the world is only going to get worse... What can we do? <laughs> Where are we with this? Well, the first thing that we can do is actually learn from our past. So flooding has always happened and humans have been dealing with it for 10,000 years, sometimes better, sometimes worse. So let's look at what went wrong, what went right, and try and implement that. We can do that at the very small level, at the household level, so people can make decisions in their own properties to use flood-resistant finishes, flood-resistant materials. But there's much wider issues in terms of planning, urban governance, dealing with people's streets, houses, infrastructures, and that means planning, living with rivers, living with coasts. A floodplain is called that for a reason. That's it the has, bit that floods. <laughs> that's the bit that floods. It is a job to do. So maybe we should think about the way we live, how we live, where we live, and let the floodplain do its job. So where are some parts of the world that are doing this well, that are coping with flooding and, and floodplains? Well, I grew up in Toronto in Canada, and I always enjoyed the ravine system, which was wonderful recreational pathways, wildlife, cycling, walking. Then when I got into this as a profession, I realised, in fact, it came from flooding. So in 1954, a devastating hurricane went through Toronto, Hurricane Hazel. It killed about 83 people. And in response, the government said, well, we're going to let the ravines, the rivers, be floodplains, which is what they are meant to be because they're beside a river. So they designated it to be green areas, greenways, recreational pathways, and building is now forbidden there. Now, as the global population does increase, though, building is encroaching on floodplains. You know, I've lived in East London, which is 
basically a swamp and they're building all kinds of things right next to the river. And is this risky, not just in London, but in, in other parts of the world? Should we just not be building there at all? Can it be possible to build safely in these areas? Wherever we build, there's going to be some risks. Therefore, we have to ensure that we have the knowledge and work with the people in the areas to determine what risks they do want, what risks they don't want. If we avoided all floodplains and all other risky areas, we wouldn't be able to build anywhere. That's where we decide, well, maybe at the local level, maybe at the household level, what we have to do is accept that some houses, some buildings are going to be flooded at times, but construct them in such a way that it's easy to wash them out, clean them afterwards, and then go back and live there. And presumably tell people to store stuff in waterproof boxes? <laughs> well, part of it is ensuring that there are not valuables on the ground floor. Part of it is ensuring that we do have an adequate warning system. Part of it is people knowing they are in the floodplain and therefore being able to respond and react when warnings are issued. Tell me a bit more about some of the kinds of strategies that we can use to maybe to enable us to build on floodplains. Because, for example, just building urbanisation increases the risk of flooding. Are there ways that, for example, planning or, or housing could help to mitigate some of those risks? This is a lot of the challenge that people do need a place to live. We do need the infrastructure. As soon as you pave something over, that increases runoff. But there are ways to reduce that. So we can use, for example, porous material on the roads. That means that it will rain on the road and go straight through, rather than necessarily giving driveways, rather than necessarily paving over front gardens. It would be possible to keep them as plants. And also, a lot of it is simply the layout and the planning to ensure that when it does rain, the water does go into the river, and that the river has a capacity to take that water rather than bursting its banks. Is there a risk of kind of over-engineering this? How often would these kind of events happen? Would it make it worth it in financial terms to build all this kind of stuff in? Well, certainly at the moment, in many places in the UK, we are over-engineering anyway. And a lot of the over-engineering is an attempt to separate people from the water. That makes a lot of sense. No one wants to be flooded. It does keep us dry. On the other hand, then, when it does rain and as the rainfall patterns change, when flooding happens, it seems unusual. People are not ready for it. So what we have to do is actually work with the people and ourselves to try and determine what balance are we seeking. How often will we accept being flooded? Or do we want to completely separate ourselves from the water, recognising that maybe every 50 years, maybe every 100 years, there's going to be a massive flood? There's no quick fix. There's no silver bullet. We simply need to recognise there's a whole variety of solutions we can take, and it really depends on how much we are going to accept being flooded, to what degree, and how frequently. And we've just heard from Claire earlier about the vulnerability of developing countries, countries that are poorer. How can they cope with these kind of risks? Everyone, whether they're in Myanmar, as Claire mentioned, whether they're in East London where you live, everyone has some form of knowledge. But they also have gaps in their knowledge. That's where it's not about going in and bestowing our wonderful aid and wonderful ideas on these poor people. It's actually about ensuring that we work with the people, we use their knowledge, recognise what they don't know, and work together to avoid the risk of flooding. Thanks very much. That's Ilan Kelman, and thanks to all our guests this week, Rob Thompson, Liz Lewis and Claire Grisafi. Time now for our question of the week with Felicity Bedford, who's been taking a look at her picks from the questions that you have been sending in. And this one comes from Jess Gonzalez. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. What would happen if I plucked a guitar in space? Lots of you like this, with Michael McLaughlin predicting on Facebook that in space, no one can hear you shred. And Jack Wilson suggesting 
you'd be everything prog rock strives to be. But how does a guitar here on earth make a sound? Jim Woodhouse is from Cambridge University's engineering department. You normally hear a guitar because the vibrating woodwork alters the air pressure, alternately compressing and rarefying it. Those pressure changes travel through the air as sound waves. Once they get inside your ear, they cause vibration in your inner ear, which gets turned into electrical nerve impulses which travel to your brain. Simple enough. So let's try again up in space. Nothing. So what's going on? There can be no sound in space because there's no air to transmit the sound waves. So if you pluck an acoustic guitar in space, the strings in the guitar body will vibrate roughly the same as they would on Earth, but no sound will be made. So, if no energy is being lost through sound, does this guitar string vibrate forever? The string will vibrate for a little bit longer than usual, because energy is not being carried away in sound waves. But it won't be very different. Most of the energy goes into internal friction in the wood of the guitar body, and that will still be the same. That energy simply turns into heat in the wood. OK, so if you find yourself floating in space, happily playing a guitar, will you ever know if your music is any good? If our spaceman could manage to make a mechanical connection to the vibrating woodwork, they might get some sound transmitted via bone conduction, which is when sound vibrations travel through your bones into your skull and reach your inner ear that way. When Beethoven was deaf, he managed to hear his piano by fixing a piece of wood to it and gripping it in his teeth. But that wouldn't be easy to do while wearing a space suit. Thanks, Jim. Although that doesn't bode well for our space jam. But what about on the International Space Station, which, fortunately, contains air? The space boffins have been hearing from a real astronaut, Tim Peake, who is set to launch this month. <laughs> so no, there is a guitar on board and of course I'll be playing it. I, I love to play, but uh, I'm not sure I'm ready to release my skills to the world yet. So you won't be sharing that? <laughs> never say never, but I've got no intention to at the moment. That's a shame, Tim, because as Andrea said on Facebook, your music would be out of this world. Next week, we're coming back down to Earth to answer Kevin's question. If someone transported polar bears to Antarctica, would they thrive? So do you know how a polar bear would get on in Antarctica? I assume they'd be able to eat the penguins because they could get the wrappers off. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists or join the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that's it for this week. Well done. And thank you very much to Newcastle University's Sam Mahaffey, who helped us put the show together this week. Next week, we're looking at how technology is influencing how we make music. Join us, and if you have any questions, it's chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, from me and from the rest of the team, goodbye. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.